At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we believe theological education should be confessional. Because of our desire to identify with what Christ has done in His Church throughout the centuries, we fully adhere to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This standard keeps us accountable and preserves us from novelty. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And all of that brings us with relief to the return of amillennialism synthesis. Um, and so what we're going to concentrate on here is the attack of resurgent amillennialism upon a dominant dispensationalism. And I think this is justified because the two major viewpoints then that are in conflict in evangelicalism are amillennialism and dispensationalism. Historic premillennialism is a fairly minor viewpoint at this point. And so also is um, postmillennialism. Both of those viewpoints have had a little resurgence in, pre- in, in recent years, but the two major players in the evangelical movement uh, <clears throat> were a dominant dispensationalism and a resurgent amillennialism. Now I'm going to skip down here a little bit. One of the evidences, I think, uh, on page 34 at the bottom, uh, of doctrinal advance in the 20th century is the emergence of a consensus of that there are four major eschatological views held by Bible-believing Christians. And, yeah, I think this is helpful. This is one of the things I promised you. And what we've seen in this overview of church history is that there are four, and I think uh, it may be said only four, major points of view. There is dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Those are the four major points of view that have been or are, have been and are held by Orthodox Christians. <clears throat> Dispensationalism holds, of course, the doctrine of the premillennial return of Christ, but is distinguished from the historic premillennial position by the distinction between the church and Israel that it makes. A further distinctive mark of dispensationalism is pre-tribulationism. This distinctive requires the church-Israel distinction and is implied by it. Historic premillennialism holds that in some sense the church is the new or true Israel of God. That's how it differs from dispensationalism. It is thus distinguished from dispensationalism its rejection of the church-Israel distinction. But at the same time, it agrees with dispensationalism in teaching the premillennial return of Christ. Amillennialism is the view which holds that the thousand years of Revelation 20 refers to the present gospel age. For this reason, I've talked about the name thing, so I'm not going to go into it. Postmillennialism agrees with amillennialism in teaching that Christ returns after the thousand years of Revelation 20. A strict or systematic postmillennialism has interpreted the thousand years of that chapter as a future golden age prior to the return of Christ. Uh, it must be said, however, that some postmillennialists have adopted what we might call an amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20 and identified the thousand years with the whole of the present gospel age. These postmillennialists have opted to establish their optimistic hopes for the prosperity of the gospel in the church on other grounds. 
Although I have to say that that if they actually do that, it is very difficult to see how that kind of post-millennialism is in any systematic or definitive way different from amillennialism, except for a more generally optimistic attitude, I guess. Now, I want to show you several ways of categorizing these various views. I just kind of bend the nail over so you understand the difference. So you see there are, of the four views, two premillennial and two postmillennial views, right? Dispensationalism and historic premillennialism are both premillennial. And, and from a certain perspective, amillennialism is premillennial, is postmillennial, because it says Christ comes back after the millennium. And so also is postmillennialism, right? So two on each side of the issue there. But you can categorize these views with regard to their understanding of the relation of the return of Christ to a future tribulation. And here, only dispensationalism is pre-tribulational. Historic, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism are all, in some sense, post-tribulational. Okay? Then these views can be classified by view of their relation of the church and Israel. And again... Uh, the dispensational position is all by itself in saying the church is distinct from Israel. Historical position is the church is the new Israel of God, and that's held by the other three positions. <clears throat> Finally, these uh, positions can be categorized by way of a future millennium, their view of a future millennium. Uh, and sometimes millennialism is, as I've told you, called chiliasm. And there are three chiliastic or millennial positions dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, and postmillennialism. There's only one anti-chiliastic position, and that's amillennialism. Another word of clarification is necessary. With regard to this delineation of the different views, it's clear that there is a basic cleavage between the premillennial views and the anti-premillennial views. It's difficult in some cases to distinguish the two premillennial views because there are overlaps between them. It's not quite as simple as I have made it seem. And there are uh, overlaps between amillennialism and postmillennialism. But there's always a very clear basic distinction between premillennialism and anti-premillennial systems. Okay. All right, questions? I've just tried to give you, uh, you know, a little overview there. <clears throat> We've seen the story of postmillennialism, the story of how it uh, uh, was attacked by a resurgent premillennialism, uh, <clears throat> the story of the 18th and 19th centuries, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries is the story of the conflict between premillennialism and postmillennialism. <clears throat> Both sides in this controversy shared a common faith the millennial golden age, and only differed as to whether Christ came back before or after it. Thus, as John Murray's statement above is implied, the distinctive perspectives and positions of amillennialism were mostly ignored in the combat of the 18th and 19th centuries. It's not too much to say that among Bible-believing Christians, triumph in this long conflict between premillennialism and postmillennialism belonged to the premillennialists. This is not to say that evangelical postmillennialism was wiped out. I don't think it ever was wiped out, but it came to be very much a minority position, small minority. 
but it certainly doesn't have the dominance that it had in the 18th century. <clears throat> but there are three, at least three reasons for the triumph of premillennialism. Uh, postmillennialism was associated with the optimistic rationalism of the age. The Enlightenment, modernism was optimistic. So was postmillennialism. It seemed like Therefore, postmillennialism was associated with the anti-God, anti-Bible spirit of the age and tarred with that brush. Then there was the biblical emphasis of premillennialism on the imminent return of Christ, and this seemed plainly biblical and plainly to tell against postmillennialism. And then there were the events of the 20th century that, as we've already said, destroyed uh, postmillennial optimism. Uh, not only did the 20th century destroy the optimistic uh, views of modernism and rationalism, it destroyed the optimism of postmillennialism. Two world wars, nuclear terror, and all of that came together to put the lie to the optimism of postmillennialism and to seem to support the much more pessimistic views of this age uh, that were taught by Darby and dispensationalism. Now, of course, world events don't justify or or dictate our eschatology, at least they shouldn't, but we've seen they often have a lot to do with it. Well, I'm going to go to sources here. Um, I've already told you about the breakup of Westminster Seminary, which kind of was epitomized the uh, fracturing of the fundamentalist cause against liberalism. Wilbur Smith, famous evangelical, decried the breakup of the alliance between the Reformed conservatives and the premillenarians. He said, what began as a powerful thrust for the evangelical faith, a repudiation of modernism and inclusiveness, dwindled to minor proportions. But it was out of the crucible of the purified reform witness of Westminster Seminary and others from a conservative Dutch reform background that a major fall assault came to be launched on the fortress of dispensationalism. Now, there were other factors, but that was the major source of it. So, I want to talk about synthesis. The amillennialism which returned to assault <clears throat> dispensationalism in the 20th century was, however, not your father's amillennialism. It was a amillennialism with a difference. Uh, it was made wiser through the conflict between premillennialism and postmillennialism. And what were the differences? Well, first, it was an amillennialism that had learned, or perhaps relearned, that the expectation and nearness of Christ's second coming is the true hope of the believer. The true hope of the believer is not to see the millennial uh, dawn in his lifetime, the true hope of the believer is the expectation of the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. And um, that's very clear from the New Testament. Uh, second, the amillennialism that returned uh, wanted to distance itself from the charge of spiritualizing and allegorizing, which in some cases came too close to the truth in the older amillennialism. And third, it was an amillennialism that was aware of the emphasis of the Bible on an earthly reign of Christ. Uh, millennialism now came to lay emphasis upon the doctrine of a redeemed earth in interpreting those passages which were often thought to teach an earthly kingdom of Christ. They believed in 
an earthly kingdom, but that it would last forever and not just for a thousand years. The amillennialism that arose in the late 20th century incorporated into itself two perspectives often associated with premillennialism in the past. Against postmillennialism, premillennialism had argued the nearness and centrality of the second advent of Christ. Most amillennials today are convinced of that. Uh, and then secondly, um, amillennials who had interpreted the promises of God as a reference to heaven or the present spiritual glory of the church now came to see that those promises could not be satisfied uh, without an emphasis upon an earthly reign of Christ. And so they had to depart from the interpretations that had seen the Old Testament prophecies as merely fulfilled in heaven or merely fulfilled in the glory of the church today uh, and began to see that there was, uh, in a sense, a kind of earthly reign of Christ uh, in the doctrine that they increasingly came to see to be biblical, the doctrine of redeemed earth. Anthony Hookema in Bible in the Future sees this very clearly. Nathan, would you read that quotation for me, please? Dispensationalists accuse us millenarians of spiritualizing prophecies of this sort so as to miss their real meaning. Walburn, for example, says, the many promises made to Israel are given one of two treatments by all mills. By the traditional Augustinian millennialism. these promises are transferred by spiritualized interpretation to the church. The church today is the true Israel and inherits the promises which Israel lost in rejecting Christ. The other, more modern type of millenarianism holds that the promises of righteousness, peace, and security are poetic pictures of heaven and fulfilled in heaven, not on the earth. On a later page, after quoting and referring to a number of prophetic passages about the future of the earth, Walbert goes on to say, By no theological alchemy should these and countless other references to earth as the sphere of Christ's millennial reign be spiritualized to become the equivalent of heaven, the eternal state, or the church, as all millenarians have done. Keep going. I, that, that's still a quotation there. To the above, we may reply that prophecies of this sort should not be interpreted as referring either to the church of the present time or to heaven, if by heaven is meant a realm somewhere off in space, far away from earth. Prophecies of this nature should be understood as descriptions in figurative language, to be sure, of the new earth, which God will bring into existence after Christ comes again, a new earth which will last not just for a thousand years, but forever. Okay, so I've tried to, in that in chart right there, to give you <clears throat> a comparison of what I've called the old amillennialism and the new amillennialism, and uh, I've probably oversimplified. It's not that new amillennialism doesn't think that there's something about a glorious heaven or a glorious church in the present age, um, uh, mentioned or seen in Old Testament prophecy. It's just that it doesn't think those two things are adequate to interpret those prophetic predictions, that you must have the doctrine of a glorious new earth. And that's why that doctrine is so important for Hukama and the Bible in the future, and I think should be important to us. Because um, to say that those prophecies merely point to heaven or to the church 
simply didn't do them justice. They weren't, that wasn't a convincing interpretation. That shouldn't have been convincing because it wasn't right. So whether through the assault of its enemies or perhaps also from its own inherent instability, the classical dispensationalism of Darby and the Schofield Restaurants Bible has shown a clear tendency to splinter and to modify in recent years. Grover Gunn and Curtis Crenshaw in their book, Dispensationalism Today, Yesterday, and Tomorrow, distinguish classical dispensationalism and neo-dispensationalism. Mark Sarver distinguishes four types of dispensationalism. Bullingerite, hyper-dispensationalism. You know what that is? These are the people that don't even believe that the church should practice the Lord's Supper or baptism because it was in a different dispensation. Uh, <clears throat> really extreme. Um, there was a Bible college that taught that point of view in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I was a pastor for many years, however. Um, uh, there is classical dispensationalism of the Schofield Reference Bible, neo-dispensationalism of the New Schofield Reference Bible, and those whom Sarver calls the one people of God dispensationalist, or what I think are probably commonly known today as progressive dispensationalists. The anthology entitled Continuity and Discontinuity, Perspectives on the Relationship Between the Old and New Testaments, edited by another Feinberg, John S., displays the amazing fluidity with modern dispensationalism. So I I don't know. This is my own own chart, take it or leave it. But it seems to me that you have at least five different uh, brands of dispensationalism out there. Um, And uh, I I even distinguish between uh, progressive dispensationalism and one people of God dispensationalism. I'm not even sure that my five different brands of it provides for someone like John MacArthur, who is maybe uh, a neo-neo-dispensationalist. I'm not sure. Um, at any rate, by way of conclusion, James Orr, in his important work, The Progress of Dogma, argues that the history of the church displays in its doctrinal development a logical order. The church refines its doctrinal understanding of progressive steps by rejecting more and more subtle deviations from the truth and balance of the Word of God. It seems clear that the time has come in the modern church for the epical refinement of the church's eschatology. The Augustinian amillennialism of the early reformers is first developed in a post-millennial direction. This is opposed by a revived premillennialism. Then this revived premillennialism is itself stretched to an extreme in dispensationalism. And finally, there is the resurgence and rebound of a wiser amillennialism. There is the kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis development, which marked some of earlier doctrinal development. Many important lessons are contained in this story of eschatological development debate. Beware of imbalanced reactions against the heirs of others. Appreciate the light which God has been pleased to shine out of his word in our era and attempt to give yourselves with a renewed enthusiasm and confidence, therefore, to the study of eschatology in the Bible. All right, questions? Because that's the conclusion of the lectures this evening. I am done 15 minutes early. I don't want anybody to not notice that. Yes. Darby was, I think, um, and the predecessor of Schofield and uh, classic dispensationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew? Where 
in here with the Pauline dispensationalists. <laughs> I don't know who in the world you're talking about. Those who say that for Christians, that only the writings of Paul. That um, sounds like a form of the Bullingerite viewpoint to me. Uh, I don't know, but there may be some dispensationalist uh, that say, well, the church does, shouldn't practice baptism. This, the only baptism we have today is what they call spirit baptism. But we should practice the Lord's Supper. That would be a Pauline, maybe, something like that. I don't know. Never heard of them uh, in that particular way, but I have heard of, it uh, seems like, uh, that particular viewpoint. Pauline in the sense of just holding the writings of the Apostle Paul. Strikingly, uh, that there's some real parallels there with Gnosticism, you know, uh, uh, in Second Peter three, where the Gnostics are attacked as distorting Paul. Uh, interesting. Yeah, Nathan. I've not heard of one people of God dispensationalists. Ryrie called the distinction between Israel and the Church the. Yeah, it's out there, you know, but what you have to, I, quite honestly, I'm pretty cynical about all of this, though, because I think a lot of this is a different kind of window dressing with in an attempt, because after they say one people of God, they're going to say, but there are two distinctions within the one people of God, the church in this. Yeah. So I just, I just really, um, you know, most of the progressive dispensationalists I know are still pre-tribulational, and the only way you can be tribulational, I'm convinced, is to hold a very strong church-Israel distinction. And so I'm not sure you can be a one people of God dispensationalist consistently, and and be pre-trib. And I think they. Probably some of them still are trying to be. Here's one of the other problems. You know, dispensationalism has been written into the doctrinal statements of a lot of institutions. And if you're going to be there, uh, either formally or informally, you have to say in some sense that you're a dispensationalist. And so that has led to all sorts of permutations of people that really weren't trying to say they are. Uh, I was once taught, John Murray was a Presbyterian, talked to taught a Puritan view of ethics, taught the, uh, you know, perpetuity of the Ten Commandments. In his books, in his writings, Principles of Conduct, I once had a teacher at uh, a dispensational seminary who was a great follower of John Murray. He taught us John Murray's ethics. No difference. And he called it modified dispensationalism. (laughs) That's always stuck in my craw. I love the man. And I, I, but I know why he had to do it because it had to be dispensationalism in some sense. Otherwise, he couldn't teach it. There you have it. Other questions? Oh, I have one here. Concerning Bullingerites, does their eschatology basically line up with the Schofieldites? I think so. I think, I think the differences are, are with regard to this, the ordinances of the church and things like that. And also what parts of the New Testament uh, are for the church, they would be probably have a smaller, smaller portion of the New Testament for Christians, 
than the Schofieldites do. Brandon. Church and in dispensationalism. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't know the, and I don't know that there's a single answer to that question. I am guessing, but I would assume that you might get a lot of different answers to that question from a lot of different dispensationalists. It, it's not, it's not essential to their system. They're not, con- in one sense, so they might be concerned about it, but it's not, it's not. A systematic concern. It's it's a detail of their system. I'm arguing that it shouldn't be a detail of our system. That it's actually crucial to biblical eschatology, and primary. Yeah, Andrew. Within a local church, or perhaps even an an association of churches, um, how vital is this doctrine in terms of um, how we work together um, and how we um, come together as a congregation. Obviously, there would be a huge difference, say, with just premillennialists, those who hold to historic or dispensationalism um, forms of, of premillennialism. Um, you know, just how does that work in the local church? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and it has a lot of different answers. Um, it depends whether you're talking about its leadership or its membership. Um, our confession, our confession is clearly not dispensational, anti-dispensational, in fact. But I, I can see, uh, a dispensationalist who doesn't want to fight about it, who has a sweet spirit submitting to the confession and saying, let's just agree to disagree. I'll keep my mouth shut. It's not a big deal for me. I see them be a member of the church. I can't see, I can see, I don't have a problem with different millennial views because in terms of their practical outworking, they don't have broad reaching implications. Dispensationalism has broad-reaching implications for your understanding of the church, not just for your eschatology, which could be overlooked, perhaps, but for your for your doctrine of the church, for your ethics, and for your understanding of the relationship of the two testaments. And these are there are a lot of practical issues. I, I don't think it'd be uh, an easy or good thing to mix the mix dispensationalism with the more historical views in the same leadership of a church, eldership. But I, I can certainly see men working together that are all pre-mill and post-mill as long as none of them are pressing the boundaries of their position too strongly. Can I put it that way? So the, the primary issue then um, with, with all of the things we've been talking about is, is dispensationalism or anti-dispensationalism? If you're asking about the primary issue in terms of the unity of churches and yeah. fellowship, yeah. But even, <clears throat> but even there, I, I want to stress that I, I think a dispen, I, I, someone could tell me they're a dispensationalist and want to join Heritage Baptist Church and I, I, I'd want to have a talk about it, but, and, but I could, I could swallow that as long as, Certain other things weren't true. Uh, although the fact, the fact of the matter is, 
but a lot of it depends on the person. We've had people come and join the church in the past and then realize what we actually believed about that issue and leave over it. We didn't ask them to leave, but they just couldn't take the idea that we didn't think uh, that the most important things in the world were what were happening in the Middle East and that they couldn't take the idea that the church was the new Israel of God. And that we didn't necessarily think that national Israel had a, was a key part of, of what the Bible taught about the future. They had a problem with that and they had a problem with us. Uh, David Hewitt asked, where would you start in a loving manner within a church where you are a member that is largely dispensational to show the inconsistencies in the dispensational position? Um, <clears throat> With the whole issue of pre-tribulationism, it seems to me that that is um, the most patently unbiblical and easy, easy to show unbiblical position of dispensationalism. It was certainly one of the first things I saw. Uh, I've been raised a dispensationalist. Once I saw the doctrines of grace in Scripture and then began to say, hey, the Bible doesn't say what I was taught it said. And began to read it for my own self. Uh, a simple study of First and Second Thessalonians showed me right away that pre-tribulationism couldn't possibly be correct. And uh, I didn't. I wasn't a rocket science theolog- scientist theologically then. I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to see it. So yeah, I think pre-tribulationism and um, the fallacy of pre-tribulationism is the place to start. Kindly. Uh, if indeed you should start at all, and uh, in, in such a context, um, if a church is constitutionally and confessionally dispensational, um, that raises serious questions about uh, uh, a program of trying to turn it non-dispensational, especially if you're not in leadership in the church. To me, David. <clears throat> I mean, you're coming through here and you're teaching new things that they've never heard. Boy, you're talking about just yeah. stepping on landmines if you're not careful. And it's just a loving spirit. <laughs> Paul Washer once told me that in Peru, you could you could come down there and teach almost anything. And they wouldn't have a problem with you if you were anti-Trinitarian or if you were Calvinist. I think he said something like this. Here's the part I know he said. But watch out if you attack dispensationalism, because that's the foundational truth. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and uh, and 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 uh, Paul would know since he's a millennial like I am. <laughs> I was glad to find that out when he came to visit us. It did my heart good to know that Paul was a millennial and not afraid to set tell me. Anyway. But he, that's what he literally said. Anything else goes almost, but don't attack dispensationalism. That's kind of like the, uh, you know, essential core foundation of the church. And sadly, it's true in, in a lot of places. Uh, still, it shouldn't be, but it is. <clears throat> well, I finished it a quarter till, and you guys have been asking me questions for 13 minutes, but that's not my fault. Okay, I just want you to know that. Uh, Andrew's going to take the last two minutes. Real quick, what was the biographer of Ed, Edwards? What was his name? George Marston is the biographer. Um, 
David Hewitt responds to what I just said. It's not constitutionally or confessionally dispensational yet. Smiley face. It's my hope and prayer that it will not be. Thank you for suggesting the starting points. Okay, I'm glad to hear it, David. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the strength and grace and help you've given us this evening. Dismiss us with your blessing. Take us safely home to good night's rest. Return us tomorrow with the strength and wisdom and the fear of the Lord that we stand in need of through Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.